0: So this week I was out of town, I was with some friends and family on the Cape, and like many of you guys, when you travel, you use a dock kit, right? You guys know what that is? Just not if you're with me. It's where you put all of your, your things, your razor, your shampoo, your soap, your hair gel, your hair net, if you wear a hair net, uh, whatever you need. And, and so uh, one, one, one day this week, I, I went into the, the bathroom and I opened up my dock kit and I was going to shave. I had a little bit of scruffies. And uh, Lauren, Lauren doesn't like that, so I went to go shave. And so I open up the dock kit, and I take out the shave gel, and I put it in my hands. And it's not, the, it's not you know, aerosol cream, it's gel. So you got to lather it up, get my face wet. And I start lathering it up, and I start rubbing it on my face. And I'm, this thing, it's not lathering. And so, you know, I get a little more water, slap it on the face, and I rub. And this probably goes on for a minute and a half, two minutes. And then I look down, and I realize that my shave gel looks exactly like my hair gel. (laughs) And so, not only was it not lathering, it was very, very sticky, and it began to harden, as hair gel does. And uh, I actually didn't tell anybody this, so I was embarrassed. So my wife and those who are with us, some of her over there, I was deceived. Because when you put these two things together, They're both the same color, they're both the same size, they're both the same shape, they both hold the same amount of contents, and even the consistency at first seemed the same, and I I felt duped. And of course, the the result there is comical. I washed it off, and I was very surprised at the strong hold of this gel. It took a a while to get it off my face, and I, I moved on. And so that's a comical example of just being deceived and the results being funny. But if we look at our own lives, if we look at Genesis chapter 27, what Cindy just read, we know we can all give examples of how being deceived and deceiving actually leads to much greater consequences. Things much more serious than a a laugh, right, and some hair gel on your face. In fact, James talks about this in James chapter 1. And he says we're tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desire. And then desire, when conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin brings forth death. Period. Then James says very simply, one sentence, do not be deceived. Because when we're deceived by the enemy, when we're deceived to disbelieve the truth of God's word... Or when we seek to deceive others, the end result is not just some small, no big deal. The end result is death. It wreaks havoc on our lives. And this is what we see when we come to Genesis 27. We see how these little acts of deception have completely wrecked and destroyed a family. And in a room this size, it's understandable. That there are those of us who are right now, we are, we are wearing the burden of past deceptions. Maybe we've been deceived by someone in a relationship or we, we ourselves have made poor decisions and we're feeling the weight of that. It's, there's been havoc that's been wreaked on relationships and our own spiritual life and we wonder, is there any hope? And this is one of those passages, we didn't, Cindy didn't read the whole thing, we'll look at all of chapter 27, this is one of those passages where as you just read it and you see what's going on, you're left wondering, is there any hope for these people? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. You can sum up this chapter in one simple sentence, it's this, deceit leads to destruction, but God's sovereign will always prevails. And so, though we see this family believe several different lies and deceive one another and be deceived by the enemy and each other, we also see that over and above that deception is God's sovereign purposes that He accomplishes that will always prevail. And that's meant to be confident, build confidence in us and to comfort us as well. So what we'll do is we'll look at this passage. There's a lot here. I want to do sort of a character study and look at three different lies the characters in this passage are believing. And the first one is this, lie number one, Isaac. Isaac is believing that he knows better than God. That's lie number one we'll look at in verses one through four. Then second, we'll see Rebecca and Jacob together. And they're believing the lie that the end justifies the means. They believe that they can, because they have a noble end, they can use sinful means to accomplish it. And that's a lie. And then third and finally, we'll look at Esau's response to all this and we'll see the lie that he is believing. We've seen this already in the Genesis account. Esau believes the lie that I can love the world and still, and still have the promises of God. I can love the world and God. So those are the three lies we're looking at this morning. That's where we're, we're headed. We want to see that deceit, while it leads to destruction, at the end, in all of this, God's sovereign will will prevail and the promise of grace will continue even in this account. So first, lie number one, Isaac, I know better than God. Now, you heard Cindy read. We come to this part of the story in Genesis. We're at the end of, near the end of Isaac's life. And he is nearly blind, his physical senses are dull, and what he wants to do is pass on the blessing that he received from Abraham to his son. And it's this promise, if you've been with us in Genesis, you saw it starting in chapter 12, this promise to Abraham, it's reiterated in almost every chapter since then, and the promise is really threefold. God told Abraham he's going to make him into a great nation. He told them also that he's going to give them this this land through which this nation is going to come, Canaan, the promised land. And then third, through, through this nation, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That was the promise given to Abraham. That was the covenant that was made, and that is a gospel promise. Through this nation of Israel, through this place, will come the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And through him, all nations, people from all nations will believe in him and have everlasting life. That's where that's headed. And so he has passed that down to Isaac, and we read the Lord affirmed this to Isaac as well. And uh, in chapter 26, verse 24, it says, the Lord appeared to him, this is Isaac, the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Abraham received the promise. Now Isaac, it's passed down to Isaac. And what does Isaac want to do? He has twins. And he wants to pass it down to his son. There's one problem. Isaac favors Esau over Jacob. We actually get a glimpse of why this is. And it's kind of indicting for Isaac. Back in chapter 25, verse 28, we read read that the reason... Isaac favors Esau is because of the game that he brought in. He was a hunter. He made good, tasty, meat-filled meals. And Isaac loved that. So we we get a hint that Isaac is someone who is being led more by his physical appetites than his spiritual appetites. We also see already this this divide in the family, right? There, There is a favorite son Now, Isaac, though they're twins, or or Esau rather, he was the older one. So it would have made sense, traditionally, that he receive the blessing. But if you remember what happened in chapter 25, verse 23, God spoke very clearly over Esau and Jacob and said that Jacob is the one who will receive the blessing. The older Esau shall serve the younger The Lord said to Rebekah, he said, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided and one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now if you're reading the story, you might be trying to give Isaac a break and I understand that and say, well maybe he didn't know. Maybe God just told Rebekah that and and he didn't know. There's no way he didn't know. Here's why. Because we know that Rebekah favored Jacob. And she knew that Isaac favored Esau. So if the Lord came to her and said, by the way, Jacob is the one, she would have said, hey, honey, just to let you know, God's word is very clear on this. She would have reminded him. She would have spoken it very clearly. I also believe that, that Isaac would have known about the incident before where Esau sold his birthright, was tricked by Jacob, and sold it for a a bowl of stew. So Isaac clearly knew about this oracle from God, this direct word from God. So if he knew, why then did he plan to bless Esau instead? Well, there's a number of reasons. Again, it was his favorite On paper, let's just be honest, and we'll see this in the rest of Genesis, Esau might have looked like the better leader, he's not running around deceiving people as much, he was the older one, but the fundamental reason Isaac decides he's going to bless Esau instead of Jacob is because he's believing the lie that he knows better than God. God has spoken, the older shall serve the younger. But he planned to thwart God's will. He's saying, I actually know better. God, I understand you said Jacob, but Esau, he's really the one. We get another hint at this because this, this act is meant to be done in secret. He does it by himself with Esau. Normally, this would be a, a public event of passing on the family blessing, but he's doing it in private because deep down he knows what God has said and he says, I would much rather do this. He's not believing God's word. He knows it, but he's saying, I know what's better. And aren't we all like Isaac in this way? Aren't there areas of our life where we say, God, I know your word says this, but I think I know the best way to go here. This is meant to be a mirror for us. And in what ways are you and I ignoring God's clear word and living as if we know better than God? You see, all of us can relate to Isaac. We saw last week this up and down journey of his faith. He is assured of the presence of God, so he obeys God and he goes to Gerar, just like God says. Then he struggles with fear, so he lies about his wife, just like his dad then, then it's brought to light and he's, there seems to be a sort of repentance. He's growing in faith. And We all experience those things. And we come to the end of his life and we see that though he's grown in faith, there's still this one area of his life where he's not willing to s- submit to God's word. And what is that area for you? Where is there selective obedience to God's word in your life? Can you imagine going to your physician who you know and trust? They know you. They know what you need. They're well-trained. They've gone to school for seven to ten years. And they evaluate some issue with you and they say, you know what? You really need to do this. You need this treatment plan. And you look them in the eye and you say, listen, I understand you know better than me. I understand I'm a pastor. You're a doctor. But I think I know how to handle this. You wouldn't do that. It's, it's foolish. Yet, how often do we look at the areas of our life and compare it to God's word and say, I know God speaks clearly on relationships, on money, on possessions, on career. I know all of these things, but I would much rather do things my way. We named our son, uh, our oldest son, Hudson, after the founder of China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor. And he famously said this, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Isaac is trying to compartmentalize this one part of his life. I bet if you followed him around, he'd look like a very spiritual person. He'd worship God. He'd pray. He would do all of these things. But there's this one part of his life where he's saying, God, I know what's best here. Friends, Christ knows what's best for your career. Christ knows what's best for your family, for your money, for your possessions, for your relationships, for your body, for your mouth, for everything. Is Christ Lord of all or not? And so, if the lie that he's believing is I know better than God, then what is the the truth he needs to believe? He needs to believe that God's word is trustworthy, right? That's what we need to believe as well. We are to trust and obey God even if it's difficult. In order to trust him, you have to know him. In order to know him, you have to know his word. We should be people of the book, but not just knowing the word, but doing the word evaluating every area of our lives and bringing it into submission to it. James says that those who look at the word and say, I know it, I know what it says, I know what it's called me to do, but then don't do it are like those who look in the mirror, see themselves, and then walk away and forget what they look like, right? We don't know better than God. We're called to submit to his trustworthy word. He knows what's best. So that's the lie Isaac's believing. Now, let's move on through the story a little bit. Now we, we, we see Rebekah and Jacob come onto the scene. And they're believing this lie that the ends justify the means. Look at verse 5. It says, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it. And Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me the game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before uh, the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. And I'm a smooth man, perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son, only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. Now notice first the the pronouns of division here. In verse 5, we see Esau is referred to as his son. In verse 6, Jacob is referred to as her son. You see that? The, and that's important to note because the fractures in this family are already so deep. The favoritism is deep. And so Rebecca overhears this plan and she comes back with a counter plan. Okay, great. We're going to make the food. I'm a good cook. Jacob, you go get this stuff, bring it to me. I'm going to whip up this meal that I know your dad likes. And then you're going to get in his clothes. You're going to get in a disguise and you're going to go in there and bring it to him. He is blind. He'll have no idea. And you are going to get the blessing. Now, it could be very easy here to miss as we're talking about the deceit that's happening in this passage. It can be very easy to point out some of the good things we see here because Rebecca actually desires a noble thing she has heard from the Lord that the older shall serve the younger and so she is saying he is actually the one who should receive the blessing it is a noble end but she uses sinful means to get to that end that is the problem in this situation She's deceiving Isaac and she is very clearly, the text says, twice she is commanding her son to sin. And just as a side note here, parents, we are never to use our children for selfish gain. We're called to love and serve our children and raise them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Children, you should absolutely obey your parents, kids, fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land, but... If your parents call you to sin, your ultimate allegiance is to God. Right? So she sins not only against her husband, but against her son as well. Now, Jacob here is not innocent. Do you notice what he says? She, she explains the plan, and he's like, instead of saying, Mom, we can't, we can't deceive Dad. That's, that's wrong. His concern is, I think we might get caught, <laughs> I mean, have you seen Esau lately? Have you seen how hairy that guy is? His only concern is that he won't get away with it. And so we read on, verse 14. So he went and he took and brought them to his mother. His mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. And Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob. And the skins of the young goats as she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which he had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So they hatch the plan. They go in. He carries it out. And notice not only is the disguise, the whole plan, deceitful. Jacob actually has three opportunities to come clean here. Look at verse 19. And this shows you that this man has no remorse for what he's doing. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game, that your soul may bless me. Directly deceives him. Then again, in verse 20, Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? Because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Not only does he deceive deceive his father, he blasphemes God. And then again, in verse 24, He said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Blatant deceit, no remorse whatsoever. All of this because they believe the ends justified the means. It's fine to want the blessing. It's fine to understand that's what God promised, but they used sinful means to get it. They believed the lie that they could shortcut God's righteousness to get a good thing. And friends, in what ways are you and I tempted to do this in our life? Maybe maybe it is blatant deceit, like Rebecca and Jacob. Maybe you are tempted to to tell lies, to get ahead, or to manipulate relationships. But you know what I've, I've found in my own life? That most often what happens is that we desire good things so much that we place them above God. Then we start subverting God's righteous ways of getting those things. So what is that for you? What good things do you desire so much in life that you're you're willing to bypass God's righteousness to get them? One of the clearest ways I've seen this, just as you consider the history of the church in America and around the world, is in the effort to reach people. Think about the church. It is a good desire to say, we want to see more people come to, to a knowledge of God. So what happened historically in the church, there was a movement that said, we want to see people come into the church, numbers are declining, and so let's go out and reach them. But then once you start thinking about it, you start realizing, man, there's some hard edges to this thing. And so the thought process went like this, and I'm simplifying it. We want to see people come into the church, we want to see people saved, but you know what, a lot of people have a hard time believing the historical reality of the resurrection. And do you, do you really have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead to, to believe the gospel? I mean, can it be this sort of metaphorical resurrection? And so the church started softening on the truth, compromising on the reality of the, the resurrection. This book says a lot about hell and judgment. Can't this just be sort of a metaphorical thing? We, don't, we can just sort of push that aside and we can really just focus on the parts that talk about love and grace and mercy. See, there's a noble end. We want to see people come to know Jesus. But then there's sinful means of compromising on the truth to get it. And what's happened? Friends, New England is littered with empty, beautiful, historic church buildings that are gospelless Because people believe the lie that the end is. Justify the means, or, may, or maybe you think about it in your relationships. It's a good desire to be married. Those of you who want to be married and aren't, it is a good and noble desire. But to want it so much that you compromise on God's standards for a spouse, you start compromising on what the Scripture clearly says about sex in marriage, because you believe the ends justify the means. Or maybe it's your career. It's a good desire to grow in your career, to grow in skill. There can be godly ambition there. But to want it so much that that you use sinful means of neglecting family, neglecting God's people, or even blatantly lying to get ahead and cutting corners. Friends, noble ends don't justify sinful means. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 2, verse 5. He gives the illustration of an athlete. He says, an athlete is not crowned. Stop, that's the end. We want to be crowned as God's people, It's looking towards the end, eternity with Jesus. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. That's the means. You can't shortcut God's righteous standards for living because you believe that the ends justify the means. So then if that's the, the lie, what's the truth to believe? It's a verse that each one of us should memorize. Matthew chapter 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If Rebecca and Jacob were, were doing that, do you know what they would have done? They would have gone to him. They would have gone to Isaac. They would have pled with him. They would have prayed. They would have put God's word before him, but then they would have trusted him with the results. Seek first the kingdom of God. Lie number three. Now we move on to Esau. We didn't read this part, so I'm going to give you an overview. But Esau comes onto the scene in response, and he believes this lie that he can love the world and still have God's blessing. So if you have your Bible open, look down at verse 30. It's where we stopped earlier. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father... Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who is it? Then that hunted game and brought it to me. That I ate it all before you came. And I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he's taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times." And he took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I've made him lord over you and all his brothers. I've given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I've sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me even also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth your dwelling shall be, and away from the dew of the heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now, just reading this story at face value, if we would say, who is the one who got the worst end of the deal here? Who is the one that's most seemingly innocent? It would be Esau. Right? He's been cheated again by his brother. He's lost what seemed to be rightfully his at face value, but we've got to be careful here. We've got to remember what we've seen already. Esau is not so innocent. Back in chapter 25, we saw that he despised the right to what he wants here. Remember he comes in tired and famished, his brother cheats him, yes, but he also despises it and sells it as if it's nothing for a bowl of soup. We also see at the end of chapter 26, verse 34, we read that when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. What's that about? Well, what, what, what Esau has done, not only has he despised his birthright, he's also ignored God's command in his parents' wishes, and he has married Hittite women. Now, the issue there, just as a side note, maybe you remember from our sermon on race, the issue there with intermarriage here is not ethnicity, it's idolatry. It's showing that Esau does not care about worshiping the one true God. So he's gone against God's word, he's married these Hittite women and brought in all of their idolatry. Hebrews tells us that he was also sexually immoral and unholy. So he is pursuing all of these things, and he has absolutely no remorse for them. In fact, in verse 36, notice how he completely blames Jacob. Yes, Jacob was a deceiver. Yes, Jacob deceived him into selling his birthright, but Esau takes no responsibility for it himself. There's no repentance, there's no humility. There is this pursuit of the things of this world, and there's this desire from the blessing from his father. He believes the lie that he can pursue the pleasures of sin and ignore the righteousness of God and still get God's blessing. We see that this doesn't awaken him because how does he respond to this whole thing? He doesn't say, you know what, I have have been following the wrong path. No instead he says, I'm going to kill my brother. Because anger is always the response to the threat of something you love. And his idol of pleasures being taken away from him. So he responds with murderous anger. If Esau were uh, around today, he would be the kind of person who would come to church on a Sunday morning, probably sing the songs, maybe even be a part of gospel community. But if you looked at his life outside of those spiritual settings, you would see someone who looks no different from the world. He loves sin and sinful pleasure, and he wants to keep one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. And he's realizing now he cannot do that. The author of Hebrews applies this directly to the church in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17. Here's what this means for us. He says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, He's saying we should seek to obtain the blessing which is the grace of God. We shouldn't be like Esau who wanted it but also wanted his unholiness and sin. Because you cannot have both. You can't love the world and still have God's blessing. None of us should expect the joy of salvation, the joy of life with Christ, spiritual maturity, if we are exchanging our birthright, our inheritance, as his children, for the pleasures of this world, the Apostle John says it this way: 1 John two fifteen. Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And let's be honest: many of us, all of us, struggle with this. All of us are being allured by the things of this world. We need to see the treasure of Jesus, the joy of knowing Christ, the joy of obtaining the grace of God is far more satisfying, though it may not feel like it in the moment, it's far more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. Jesus says in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man has found and covered up. That's what Jesus is like. He's covered it up and in his joy, he's gone and he's sold everything that he has so he can go get that field. Translation, he was all in on Jesus. His full satisfaction came for Christ. But so many of us live in the anti-kingdom parable of Matthew 13, uh, don't we? We live as if, we, we live this lie. The kingdom of the world is like junk hidden in the field. Which we find and we cover it up and then in our joy we go and sell all the eternal riches of Christ in exchange for that field of junk. Sounds really silly when you put it that way, doesn't it? Aura Rowan was a hymn writer. She's only written one hymn as far as I know called Hast Thou Seen Him, Heard Him, Known Him. Very long title. That's how they did it back in the day. But listen to this call that we would Turn from the vanity of this world and see the superior worth of Christ. Listen to what she says in this verse. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Please don't mishear me this morning. It can be very easy to to look at stories like this and say, we need to go out here and do better. We need to do better at not being deceived. We need to work harder at not deceiving others. All of those things are true, but it's putting the cart before the horse. What we ultimately need is not to do better, but to see better. We need to see that there is nothing like Christ. He alone satisfies. He is of peerless worth. Is that true for you and I? The truth that Esau needs to hear and the truth that you and I need to hear is that Christ is the treasure above all. True blessing is found in him, not in the pleasures of this world. So they believe these lies and destruction ensues. Do you notice what happens here? A dysfunctional family is fractured even more. Esau wants to kill Jacob as a result of his deceit, verse 41, Jacob flees. He never sees Rebekah again. The family is completely divided. Rebekah loathes her life because of Esau's sin. Isaac is dishonored. This deceit has led to complete and total destruction. That's how chapter 27 ends. But listen to this. This is so important for us that we don't end here. Because chapter 28 begins with a recognition from Isaac that he was wrong and that Jacob is the one who is to rightly receive the blessing. Verse 3 of 28, he brings Jacob near and he says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land and your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So he rightly blesses him fully, and the promise continues. And God's sovereignty in this situation of deception and destruction prevails all the way until the fulfillment of the promise, which is Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 11 gives this this strange commentary on Genesis 27 when it says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing, on Jacob and Esau. Now, I don't know about you, but I read Genesis 27 and I'm like, "Faith? You're holding him up as an example of faith, but do you see what the Bible is saying? Even in his deception, even in his unbelief, there was this grain of faith that God would cont- continue on the line of promise." And God shows us it wasn't the it wasn't the strength of Isaac's faith but the object. It was his sovereign will that prevailed. Genesis 50 ends with this bookend. That's true not just of the story of Joseph, but over the whole book. Joseph tells his brothers who sold him into slavery, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Not God took it and then twisted it for good. God meant it, meaning he had a superior purpose in it. That many people should be kept alive as they are today. Friends, deception leads to destruction in this family, but God's sovereign will prevails. Now, where do we see the clearest picture of that truth? We see it in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ came and he was a man in whom there was no deceit. Yet the father of lies, the enemy, sought to destroy him He was given a false trial. He was lied about, though he was completely innocent. And the deception led to the destruction of his body. And when he went to that cross, he took on not only the nails in his hands, but every lie, every unjust act, every act of unbelief, That any of his children have ever committed past, present, future. And he nailed it to the cross. Colossians 2.14 says when he did that, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us. And he went into the grave as a dead man. But God's sovereign will prevailed. And three days later, he rose Christ from the dead. The deception of our sin led to his destruction... Yet God's purposes raised him from the dead. That, listen, all who believe may have eternal life. That all who believe may have the record of debt wiped clean. So friends, let's believe Christ. Don't believe the lie that you and I know better than God. Trust his word. Don't believe the lie that the the ends justify sinful means. Walk in truth. Seek first his kingdom. And don't believe that you can love the world and find satisfaction there and still follow God. Find your ultimate treasure in Christ, in Christ alone. Let's pray together.